Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us on America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho and our guests, Scott Brunsheen and Kimberly Jones. All right, more about those two in a second. 847-866-WNUR is the number in studio. Hey, call us. You get to have your voice heard live on air. Again, 847-866-9687. Don't be shy. But if you are, no big deal. You can also leave us a message on 224-2189-BOX. 224-218-9269. We are live in studio on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. We are streaming live on WNUR.org slash pop-up, and we're available as a podcast on iTunes. All right. Tonight, we go inside the huddle with tenor Scott Brunsheen and soprano Kimberly Jones. They're both performing in the current production of Purcell's work, The Fairy Queen, at Chicago Opera Theater. Hear what they have to say about the rehearsal process of this sexy update of a Baroque classic. 20 minutes, chalk talk, Oliver tackles a noisy audience member at a recent production of Humperdinck's opera Hansel and Gretel at Seattle Opera. I tackle Isaac Mizrahi, the sports-allergic honorary chairman of last month's National Opera Week. Visit our website, operaboxscore.com, to read these articles about those two stories. Finally, yes, wait for it. You get all your opera headlines and our hot takes on them in the two-minute drill. A little bouncer slowly towards Bryant. He will glove it and throw it to Rizzo. It's in time, and the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. The Cubs have done it the longest drought in the history of America. American sports is over. The celebration begins. Oliver Camacho, please tell me you were watching. I actually was, and I I think I watched a total of three games this whole year, and they were all really good, and they all happened to be with the Cubs playing, and that Anthony Rizzo is so cute. Uh, and so is that guy, something Bryant with the beautiful Chris eye, Bryant. the He's guy that smiles eyes. and giggles yeah. when he... Yeah. I like giggling baseball players. I'll watch that if they giggle. Uh, hey, Scott Brenshin, did you watch the Cubs game? I did not. Oh I'm a terrible goodness. Chicago <gasps> Get resident. Get out of this studio. I know. Kimberly Jones, tell me you watched it. Absolutely. Yes, okay. I did. I think I watched three games. So I was very excited. <laughs> I could see it from my window. So yeah, Okay. So this is, this is for all the Cubs fans right now. We just got to get this out of the way here. <laughs> Are we going to sing? No, we don't need to sing. <laughs> it, I just, I, I, I cried. When I saw the Cubs win the World Series, I cried. And my kids, who are seven and four, they got to stay up late and watch a little bit of every single game. Oh, they're going to remember that. They are. Hey, look, the, so the last time the Cubs won the World Series was... When the Fairy Queen was written? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, very, you're very close. It was 1908. Now, a lot of sports people have been saying, like, hey, this is what was going on in American life in 1908. And I did some research. This is what was happening in opera. 
1908. So in 1908, the last time the Cubs won the World Series, Rimsky-Korsakov died the same year. Uh, Strauss's Electra was composed the following year. And three years after the Cubs last won the World Series was the premiere of Rosenkavalier. And it was another 10 years after 1908 when Puccini wrote Turandot. That is how far ago uh, the Cubs last won the World Series. All right, enough sports. You guys ready to talk some opera? Um, I, we, can we talk about sports a little bit longer? No, it's okay. Let's go talk about opera. Let's go inside the huddle. Once I'm sorry. Again. I'm sorry. Toby's not here to bro out with you tonight. So no, it's all good. Okay, it's all good. Toby's rehearsing something. Um, Scott Brunchin, our guest. Kimberly Jones, our guest. These two are in the production of Purcell's *The Fairy Queen* at Chicago Opera Theater. Oliver and I saw the show on Saturday. Aww, we sat next to each other. We did sit next yeah. to each other. Yes. Uh, you gave me tissues. I t- that, okay. <laughs> uh, Oliver, set, set us up for us. Tell us a little bit about the story of this opera, not in detail, because it's complicated, but tell us what we need to know and let's listen to some music. Okay, well, why don't you play the first clip? All right, just go right into yeah, it? Yeah, do okay, it. Okay, here we go. I put a really pretty little fade out there. We didn't hear it, dude. No. All right. Sorry. Um, Anyway, so Henry Purcell's a composer, late 17th century composer, and he actually only wrote one opera, which is Dido and Aeneas. But The Fairy Queen falls into the category of a a semi-opera or a mask. Um, Some people say that Fairy Queen was uh, entertainment during the intermissions of the full play of Midsummer Night's Dream. And if you do all of the Fairy Queen music, it's over two hours. So we're talking about like a, maybe a five to six hour evening in the theater if you're getting the semi-opera and the Shakespeare play. Um, the plot of Fairy Queen is not really a plot. It's more of a collection of vignettes. But like many Baroque operas, Baroque pieces, uh, each vignette, uh, really does get to the heart of uh, a specific affectation or a specific mood. And that's how the composer builds uh, the evening mm-hmm. by giving you one mood at a time. So you, you might have like, whatever, 12 pieces that comprise a scene. And Purcell was a genius at really, you know, drawing on the emotions and taking you really deeply into, you know, certain emotions like, you know, uh, loss or joy or, um, you know, anguish or even anger, and then um, doing the next piece, like adding the next piece, which is meant to change the emotion. And it's almost like a, you know, when people work your chakras, like they first work this chakra, then they work that chakra. That's what broke operas do. But in order to be successful in broke opera, you have to do it sincerely, and you have to really perform 
the music the way it was meant to be performed. The texts are sort of um, Shakespearean, like the libretto has this very kind of antiquated uh, high English for the most part. And uh, it's hard to follow exactly what's happening in the text. You really have to go with just the sound of the language and the mood of the piece, and it works. I've been in a production. I've actually assistant directed a production of Fairy Queen, and it might be one of my top ten pieces of all time. You're really uh, big into this music. I, I love it. That. I love it so much. I'm a purist, and I'm single-handedly killing opera because I want things to be traditional sometimes, and I really love when things are done sincerely and, and presented the way they're meant to be presented. Kimberly, let me ask you the same question. Is, is this your music? Is this your jam? What's your take on this style of opera? You know what? Actually, this is one of the first operas uh, that I've done in this time. Usually I'm doing more things like Puccini or Mozart, but um, it's really wonderful how you get to handle the voice a little bit differently than you do in other kinds of opera. It's a little bit more pure and a little bit more, I don't want to say straight tone, but it's not as Wagnerian, obviously. It's a little bit more pure, and it's, it's such beautiful music to sing. I really enjoy it a lot. And Scott, is this the kind of music that gets you hot? I love Baroque music. Uh, I mean, I haven't sung much of it until recently. Uh, thankfully, I feel like this is pretty pretty similar to a lot of things that I have done in the past. Um, but, I mean, he wrote such good music for tenor in the show it's so good well you'll you hear from the clip we just heard um that there's a lot of chorus in the show and that's what also makes this a great show to put on in colleges or in young artist programs uh because there is so much requirement for ensemble singing and i just have to finish what i was really originally saying about the fairy queen by just even by its name there is something about this piece that's meant to be magical and we are put in the for most almost the entire show we're put in the fairy bower and the characters who are singing are meant to be like enchanting and delightful and, you know, asexual, almost like, you know, like you think of fairies like a Tinkerbell. I mean, she's kind of sexy. Let's, let's be real. That's but, very true. You know, but, That's what you know, my daughter was for Halloween, by the way. Watch it. <laughs> <laughs> but every now and then some mortals come into the picture and we just heard of the scene of the drunken poet. And it's hilarious to me that this, the one of the few mortals we get to encounter in this opera, the semi-opera, is a drunk person. And you can imagine these like little tiny fairies like flitting around this big oafish baritone <laughs> who reeks of alcohol and they don't even know what to make of him, you know? Kimberly, talking of sexy. So this show, it, it is quite erotic. It is set in a Las Vegas nightclub. <laughs> There's a lot of... So the fairy bar is now Club Fairy Queen. That's exactly <laughs> right. So, so my question, Kim, is like, what was that like to rehearse there's lots of physical contact it's very sexy like what's the what's the energy in the rehearsal room like well you know it's a lot of fun at actually portraying somebody else but of course um it's also fun getting to know the person that you're that you're working with and obviously yeah i you know had to uh, kind of fool around with two guys a little bit or act like i am <laughs> i thought it was a lot of fun actually you know i i kind of enjoy that and uh it's just kind of a place where you cannot really hide anywhere so you you have to let your inhibitions go and uh, it's a lot of fun. I love it. Scott, was it as fun for you as it was for Kim? That wasn't meant to <laughs> okay. come across the way. Never mind. Scott has a real huge task. He has to convince the audience that he's a homosexual first. I, oh, no. I, that he's I a heterosexual. Sure. <laughs> I sure do. I mean, my my one my one uh, solo aria, it's the first line is, here's summer sprightly gay. And I'm doing this while I'm, while I'm uh, dancing. Um, some Britney Spears moves if you are at the show and are watching carefully. Um, 
Yeah, it was a lot of fun, actually. I mean, the whole time that we were rehearsing, I thought I kept on thinking like, wow, this is not what I expected for the show. But like, really, what other show am I going to be able to do this? And, you know, when it comes to the uncomfortable things, you know, you're sitting there and you're you might be doing something scandalously sexy on stage and thinking like, oh my gosh, my mom is in the audience watching this. Well, most of you were just, I mean, it was fully clothed for the most part. Oh, yeah. there was, it was very suggestive. But there was this one guy, he's in the Young Artist program, I think. He was doing yoga on stage. Yeah. He was incredible. And if you go to the opera to be titillated or if you want to see some nudity, you're not going to get that in this show, but you are going to see this amazing baritone. Is he a baritone? Yeah, he's a, he's a bass. He like does a pole dance and it's very nice. ridiculous. That guy, so, he was very nice. And he did that over and over in rehearsals. Like that whole routine, he would just do it like two or three times in a row and, and then be like, oh, okay, whatever. We were very happy. I wanted to talk about the dance really quickly. I didn't <laughs> mention that, but these operas and this time, especially the English ones, had a lot of dance rhythms in them. And in order to make these things successful, there has to be movement on the stage. I love it when there's actual Baroque dance on the stage, but I will accept if there is dancing and movement. And I have to say that there were some really lovely moments in the show where everybody was just moving and you got the sense of, you know, the joy that can come uh, in some of this music. And it just makes you want to move, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I applaud that. I want to kind of know how those things came about. Like, did you, I didn't see a choreographer listed, so... Was there a choreographer? I just missed it in the program, or no? Okay. no. Actually, our very first rehearsal, we got to that the the sexy time pole dance, <laughs> and he was like, "All right, before we get started with staging, like, listen to the music and like just move your body, like figure out figure out what yeah. what feels good and like how you can be modern. And if you want to throw in a baroque gesture here and there and see if that like fits, and and you know." It, it's fun, then do it. So we literally did that for what, like 20 minutes? We mm -hmm. just kept on playing that Chacon um, over and over <laughs> until he was like, all right, now we get the feel for Baroque party time. You're talking about Andreas Medisek, who's yeah. the artistic director and the head of the company. He was also the designer of this production as well yes. as the director. What else, Scott, is part of his process in the room? You've talked about the dancing. What, what else is important to Medisek when he's in the room? You know, he is uh, such a cool guy to work with because he has such a specific uh, look for the show and very specific ideas for the characters even. Um, you know, he, he'll he really talk to you about exactly what he wants you to be doing physically and, and uh, how you're interacting with people um, and, how, you know, delivering the text in a way that everything, it fits all together. Um, so it's all very structured, uh, but at the same time, you know, for me and my my little song slash aria thing, he was like, "So, do you want to dance?" And I was like, "Do I? <laughs> of course!" So I did. Um, and and uh, every time, you know, he'd give you like little tweaks in, here and there just to say like, "Well, that's not really working." But you know, for the most part, with all of the I think with so many people on stage, he had to be so specific. I don't know how he is in other sh smaller casts. Well, I'm curious about this. George, what is the name of the, the company that helped them develop the script? What was that? Uh, Culture Clash. Okay. Which so, is this trio of satirical playwrights that are based in California. Those guys have been cranking it out for like 30 years probably. Okay, here's something I want to talk about. So Culture Clash wrote this script or developed this script 
which is in the vernacular and makes it very easy for the audience to understand what the narrative is supposed to be, what the drama is supposed to be. But then you switch into your singing and all of a sudden the language goes back, you know, 400 years and it's not always so clear how the text of the music relates to what you were just saying. If you paying attention to, as I was saying before, the affectations, usually Midasex got it right and the mood of the piece communicates uh, what's happening with the characters. But I want to know what it's like for you guys to have to like go like change gears all of a sudden and turn into this floral language. And, you know, I was, it was a little bit difficult for me. It was shocking for me because I'm so used to seeing this piece without that dialogue, oh, you know, man. and the dialogue was, was challenging for me. But I know the audience probably appreciated it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kim, what do you think when, when approaching all of the, the lyrics to the songs, I kind of felt similar to singing in a foreign language where you, you know all the words, mm-hmm. but you have to make them feel like your own. And sometimes you, you superimpose, um, you know, subtext in, into everything that you're singing. So mm-hmm. I feel like that's, I did that as much for this as I've done for shows that were in a foreign language. It's so true because it does sound so different uh, than it does, you know, from the English, you know, the way we normally speak. But, uh, but yeah, it was a little bit challenging, but I, I really enjoyed that, though. I mean, there certainly are other operatic works that have dialogue mixed in with sung music, right? Zingspiel, Zingspiel, sure, yeah. Carmen, yeah. Oh, sure, uh, yeah. Zingspiel, Mozart. But it does, mm-hmm. uh, operetta, of course, but it does require a certain, a different approach to the rehearsal process. And, I mean, did you look at those spoken scenes first? Did you look at them last? Or was it really you just had to kind of, as Oliver says, switch gears between the two, Kimberly? <laughs> um well, yes, I think uh, the dialogue was a little bit later, so we, we we received that a little bit later, and it was really funny when we received it. We're like, oh, because it, it's you know it's just a little bit something different than than I was expecting at yeah. least, but it did add a little humor. So hopefully, it works well, really how, well. How many inches high were your shoes you were wearing in that <laughs> one scene? No, um, and were you? So there's one scene where you're like running across the stage, you're chasing after Puck. You know, I was so scared for you. It's like, oh my gosh, she's gonna trip. It's like, you know what? Um, oh, come on, this is the Kimberly first. Jones. Yeah, right. <laughs> the first time I got in them, I was like, oh my god, this is not going to work. But you know, I, I God, I dress like that all you're, the time. You're so. a baller. <laughs> so you were. It was no Did anybody ever see the show VIP with Pamela Anderson, like in the '90s? I oh my god, I remember that show. I love the show. Yeah. I kept thinking of Pamela Anderson <laughs> running. <laughs> it's, it's easier after a while. You just kind of run slower than you have been in rehearsal. Uh, Let's put it that way. She used to. Run, she used to run slow motion in Baywatch. Yeah, like buying a buying a woman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so one of the things about Fairy Queen or about most broke opera is uh, the sense of hierarchy between the characters. Uh, in this world, um, the fairy king and the fairy queen Titania and Oberon mm-hmm. are the highest on the ladder. Later on, at the very end of the show, we get some gods that actually come in, but you guys didn't really use that in this sh- version. Mm-hmm. And then the mortals obviously are the lowest on the ladder, and then the fairies <laughs> kind of fall in between. This whole uh, new story that they created for uh, the C.O.T. Fairy Queen revolves around uh, the birthday of uh, King Oberon, uh, which he's called Ron in the, yes. in the show. Yes. And mm-hmm. your name became Tanya. Tanya, <laughs> yeah. Tanya. You give us like a lot of Olivia Pope realness in this show, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. um, anyway, so we're going to hear this uh, little clip that is one of my favorite pieces in the show, which is the birthday party of King Oberon. Uh, This is Now the Night is Chased Away. Uh, This is from the very sexy 2001 recording by the Accademia Byzantina, directed by Ottavio Dantone, Dantone, excuse me, with Carolyn Sampson. (laughs) 
very nice. I could listen to that music all day. <laughs> so, Kimberly, Scott, where can we see the show? Tell us about it. Come down to Studebaker, uh, the Fine Arts Building, f- first floor, right on Van Buren and Congress. Yes, 410 South Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Friday at 730. 7.30 and Sunday this weekend at 3 p.m. Yes. That's another big part of the story is that this theater has been closed for 40 years. It's mm-hmm. in the historic Fine Arts Building. Yeah. And uh, for those people who come to that building, you would always notice there's this theater in the ground floor that's always boarded up and closed. And this is the first full opera production uh, in that space. They've been trying to do things little by little, but this is the first real, real show. And I have to say that the this theater itself is gorgeous. It feels very historical. Mm-hmm. They got to work on the seats a little bit. They're not super comfortable. <laughs> I think 40 years ago, we must have been much lighter and thinner. What are you, talk- <laughs> what are you talking about, man? The seats, my folks are there. They were sitting on the main floor. Seats were awesome. Yeah, but up in the balcony? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, the balcony wasn't done they, But they're going to renovate the balcony. Minisec yeah. said they're going to renovate the balcony. Yeah. So, uh, hey, Scott Brenshin, Kimberly Jones, thank you guys so much for coming out tonight. Thank you. Really appreciate it. We're going to take a short break here on Opera Box Score. It's WNUR 89.3 FM. Stick around. Chalk Talk is coming up next. Don't want to miss that. <laughs> From Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. I'm Dr. Linda Van Eldick, a biomedical scientist supported by the American Health Assistance Foundation. I conduct research aimed at discovering new and effective treatments for Alzheimer's disease. This is critical because more than 1,000 Americans develop Alzheimer's every day. At our website, you can learn how to live with or care for someone with the disease. Call 1-800-437-2423 or go to ahaf.org for a free brochure on understanding Alzheimer's disease. Is that a faucet running? That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. You can always come up with an excuse for not visiting longtermcare.gov. Oh, I forgot. Game night. After all, who wants to admit that one day they will be, you know, old? Hey, do you see any crow's feet on this face? I don't. But since 70% of older Americans need some kind of long-term care, why not do some free planning now so you can stay in charge? Visit longtermcare.gov and find your own path forward. We are back and we are looking at a pretty lopsided matchup, Jim. That's right, Ron. I mean, in one corner, we've got a 175-pound guy, and in the other, a 6,000-ton heavyweight train? Jim, this guy has no idea what he's getting himself into. It's no contest. Every day, people tempt fate and die trespassing on railroad tracks. See tracks, think train. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. And we are back on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. George Cedarquist here with. Oliver Camacho. Wow, we lucked out. We had a really classy lady in here for once. What a beautiful woman that 
uh, Kimberly uh, Jones. In is. addition to Javon. Yeah, Jacques. but she's not here all the time. You know, it's usually, okay. a, it's usually okay. a sausage party th- party in here. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was a low blow. Scott yeah. Brenton, thanks for hanging <laughs> out with us. Uh, I thought I was a pretty lady. Um, hey, you know, look on the break. Um, Kenny called in one of our listeners oh, from yeah. Michigan, and uh, he's got a little factoid about the 1908. Cubs thing, and it's also a little micro pop quiz for uh, Oliver, oh, actually. Gosh. Which was uh, somebody did his uh, premiere conducting at the Metropolitan Opera in 1908. Uh, at the Met, 1908. Yes. Uh, Richard Strauss? No. Uh, and what was, and, and, and the piece, what would the piece be? In 1908? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's, that's before Torrendot, so maybe. I don't know, Madam Butterfly? We'll put the answer on the website. We'll leave people guessing <laughs> a little bit. Uh, That's not really a good clue. I mean, a lot of people probably made their debut conducting 1908, you know? Not, there's only a few days in the year when a debut could happen, <laughs> so you should narrow the field a little bit. All right. Um, so, Chalk Talk, uh, we've got two stories here to kind of examine a little more in depth. Um, and I want to start with one that's absolutely fresh, brand new. So there's a production of Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel at Seattle Opera. And the reviewer for the Seattle News Tribune reviewed the show in the form of a letter to a patron who had caused a bit of a kerfuffle, I guess is the right word. I'm wondering, Oliver, if you would be able to set up the story yeah, so in this, a little more detail. This is published uh, in the News Tribune, I guess, that circulates around Seattle. Uh, this is by... Um, her name, Rosemary Ponacanti. Didn't practice that name. I'm so sorry. And she starts off by saying, Dear Lady at the Opera, I'm sure you felt compelled by some sense of duty when you turned around and hissed nastily at the elderly couple next to me who were murmuring quietly during the overture. How were you to know she was hard of hearing and he was letting her know what was happening? And I'm sure you thought you were acting righteously when you complained to the ushers so that the couple got a second public telling off during intermission. But I wonder, did you realize the effect you were having on future opera audiences? At least one young person nearby witnessed your nastiness and was shocked that opera was the kind of place where you are not only forbidden to talk, you are subject to such rudeness. She and others may think twice about coming back, which will be a problem for the art form when older folks like you have passed on. She then goes on to formally uh, review the show, and she really enjoyed the show and talked about, but in the form of this letter to this bad patron. And she concludes by saying, if Seattle Opera is truly hoping to reach a new generation by better reflecting our region, uh, this goal might include people like you being more tolerant of opera goers interacting out loud with the music and each other. After all, this is an art form about humanity, not perfection. And this letter resonated with a lot of people in my Facebook circle. I saw it circulated a lot. And I agree so much with this. I mean, as somebody who is of color and and represents three minority groups, when I go to the opera, sometimes I get really great seats because I'm doing this radio show and I have other things. And sometimes I I thought you were going to say because you're a minority. No, 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 no. Because that ain't fair, man. This white guy's like, that's not fair. Affirmative action. Put the Mexicanos (laughs) up front. No. um, So sometimes I sit like in the third row and sometimes I see... Uh, people like they like clutch their purses, you know, or they like wrap their furs like a little bit tighter around them when they, they see me sit yeah. next to them. Yeah. And like I bathe, you know, I try to look cute when I go to the show. You're very cute. Mm, thanks. But, um, you know, I do feel that there's this xenophobia and this kind of fear of the other in some of these circles. And yeah. I think it has to do with some of these people have been giving opera money to the opera forever. Right. And they're just used to their seats. They're used to the people that sit next to them. And I think that they are trying to preserve this like society 
Um, but they're not going to be around forever, you know. And they, if they really want to help the opera out, they've got to like loosen up a little bit. You know? But there are some traditions from the past which have been in the theater which we have gotten rid of uh, like people there's no longer orange selling prostitutes in theaters like uh, you what, know we're orange we're, selling prostitutes or oranges s- s- prostitutes who sell oranges prostitutes okay, who sell like oranges. donald trump's orange yes, you know, right. so, okay <laughs> i understand uh i mean theater technology has advanced and theater etiquette has advanced it seems to me that like people should be listening to the opera and not talking to each other uh, am I wrong? Yeah, I mean, there are some shows, like, let's be real, like a, uh, a Baroque opera, which I love, you know, right. sometimes they're four hours long, yeah. and there are arias that are written in, yeah. the arie di sorbetti, the sorbet arias, mm-hmm. that are inconsequential to the action and are sung by minor characters so that people can get up and, like, talk for a while, play a hand of cards, maybe eat some sorbet, you know. That was part of the evening. Now, granted, you know, in an opera like Electra, there's, like, it's whatever 90 minutes long and there's no yeah. time for anything and you're like you know gripped by it you know then just you would never interrupt a show like that but i think it's not so bad to like whatever have a little bit of a laugh and to you know talk check your cell phone i don't know maybe certain shows lend themselves to that certain not well this she was complaining about this production because they'd also added an aria to it the hansel and gretel yeah this aria <laughs> What about Scott? What do you, I mean, Scott, you're you're affiliated with this Chicago Fringe Opera, and you guys are trying to create like a much more uh, interactive experience with your audience. You even ask your audience like take a selfie sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I remember the turn of the screw where you like broke up each scene of the opera into different rooms of a mansion, and you had like the what was the name of the 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 maid, um, Mrs. Gross. Mrs. Gross like takes takes the audience like on a, on a tour of the show. And like you're breaking the fourth wall and you're also breaking the continuity of the show. So it gives an opportunity for the audience to like actually interact and to like stop and maybe even talk while they're walking to the next scene, you know? So I don't know. I feel like that's sort of related to what you're all doing over there. Yeah. I mean, we, we've talked a lot about it with, uh, you know, picking shows that are too long. I mean, we're just, it's not a culture of people who are going to, or especially young people who want to sit around and, and stare at a stage and things happening on stage or listening even beautiful music um, for, you know, two and three hours. But, you know, give them a chance to, like, check in on their phone. Everybody wants to do it. Like, just do point. it. And and then once once you get it done, you can move on with your life. And if they're always on their phone, let's be real. It's you your should fault. Start, you should ask yeah. the question, why? Yeah. It, and that's an excellent point. And it does agree with what you're saying, Oliver, which is basically in the 18th century, people were socializing with each other in the theater. Now we just want to socialize basically on a, on a network, essentially. Yeah. Why should we not have the ability to do that during a performance? Well, they have some, some shows have like tweet seats yeah. where like it's a certain section of the house where you can be on your phone and they're encouraging you obviously to like live tweet the event. It helps right. them with their publicity, but let's be real. I'm sure there are some people who are just actually like on Facebook, you know, sure. because they're bored. Yeah. And I do think that it's, it's the, if, if your audience is not paying attention, if they're bored, that's on you. That's not on them. Mm. You know, No question. I was talking to a guy at a party about this the other day. He's like, I don't go to the opera because I think it's boring and I fall asleep. I was like, dude, it's not your job to stay awake. It's our job as singers and directors and designers to keep you awake, to keep you so engrossed in this piece and to keep the music so alive. No, it's not your job to stay awake, dude. I think the biggest question that 
a lot of people are going to have to answer very soon is how to integrate um, the everybody's everybody's cell phone and and social networks into the performances themselves. I mean, just you you have people live tweeting scandal or you know any any of these uh, shows. You know, when you go onto Facebook and you're like, oh, I didn't I didn't watch uh, the the uh, oh my gosh House of Cards or any of these shows. You're like, mm-hmm. I can't get on social media because people are going to be live tweeting the whole thing. Hopefully. There's an incentive to live tweet any performance, whether it be opera or theater. I mean, I just feel like that's how people are responding now. Well, if it's our job to keep everybody awake, it's your job to get eight hours of sleep and have a good <laughs> breakfast, folks. I, I try to get eight hours of sleep. Good. Good for you. I went to bed really early last night. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, iPhone now has this thing called bedtime. I just found it on the new operating system. Okay. Where you tell your iPhone how many hours of sleep you want to get and what time you want to wake up. And then your phone tells you, you know what? It's time to go to bed. Like, you should be going to bed now. If you really want to do this thing, go to bed. Go <laughs> and to if your FM iPhone then. tells you to do it, you'll do it. Oh it's Opera it Box Score nice on 89.3 <laughs> FM. Number in the studio, 847-866-WNUR. Let us know what you're thinking. Um, all right. So National Opera Week has come and gone. Hey, Isaac we didn't celebrate it. I have well, all my cards still waiting on actually, my... Actually, last week's show, the, the, the Halloween Spooktacular was, yeah. it, was um, advertised on the... Opera America website. So Isaac Mizrahi, he was the honorary chairman. Opera America billed him as, quote, that famous designer and beloved television personality, uh, and that his job, his um, remit, if you will, for National Opera Week, was to encourage audiences to explore opera. And this is what he said. The more you know about opera, the more you know about life. Opera is as important to me as sports are to other people. An opera season is like Wimbledon or the World Series. The power of great singing is more than any other physical effort and ten times as gratifying. Now, you, uh, Oliver, you and Mathen talked about this on the show last week. I was trick-or-treating with the kids, so I didn't get a chance to, to chime in. I could not disagree more with this statement. With his statement? With his statement. What particularly do you disagree with? Because basically, he's saying that singing is more is more of a physical effort than playing sports. You try telling that to any NBA player, NFL player. Look, you play, you play one snap in the NFL and your body's never the same again. All right. Well, you obviously are not a singer. Um, it is extremely physical. It requires a lot of concentration and you are a slave to your instrument and you have to protect yourself the way you know, whatever, like these pitchers protect their arms, but they, they can only throw 42 pitches. Tell that to some soprano. You can only, you can only sing, you know, 42 A's and you're done, you know? He, he goes on to say it's great singing is 10 times more gratifying than, for him at least, than for watching Wimbledon in the World Series. P.S. I don't get the simile between an opera season being like Wimbledon. Like, Wimbledon's like two okay, weeks. Okay, let me, I know where you're going with that. Uh, so let me just say that the World Series was extremely exciting and I don't watch baseball, but I was riveted. And I was full of, like, whatever you can feel about wanting the outcome to be. But I have to say, just yesterday, I went to go see Third Coast Baroque, which is a brand new group that started in Chicago, featuring some of the best uh, early music specialists in Mm -hmm. Chicago. And I had such an amazing time at this concert. I left, like, wanting to, like, dance and sing. It was the best time. And so it touched me. It moved me. I'm not saying everything I go to does that. But music has that potential. There's no, there's no question it does. I wouldn't be in the business if music wasn't able to move me. Watching Game 7 of the World Series, I have never 
felt that way in an opera house. Well, the How- stakes are so high. Exactly. But yeah. shouldn't the stakes be that high in any opera? If you were at the Aida in Mexico City where Maria Callas sang a high E at the end of the triumphal scene, I think you would feel that way. Okay. Ex- I, I get that point. I get that Scott, point. Scott, what about you? What's your favorite moment in sports slash moment in opera? <laughs> uh, sports are where they have balls, right? And they hit them with sticks. Um, honestly, some of them. Uh, some of them. I would say like, 95% of them, yes. Okay, I, I mean, <laughs> I don't do these things. Uh, no, I have to say, I kind of agree with what Isaac Mizrahi said because I feel like there's a lot of, uh, there's a, a lot of people who are automatically drawn to just that the resonance of a human voice going and hitting you in, in your ears and your body and, I mean, just all the, the live music and how it literally moves you um, and that that's how I think that's what he's saying. We, we see people go crazy like at Popcars, like Adele singing right. or something like that or whatever. Jonas Brothers, like when people or Celine Dion, like when Celine Dion sings that thing from Titanic, you know, people go ape right? poop over that stuff. You know, they feel it, you know, and like that is something that I think we can achieve in opera. But it does require that the audience knows what they're getting themselves into. And they have to see Aida a couple of times to know that to sing an E at the end of the triumphal scene, it's ridiculous and nobody does it, you know? I do it. I mean, to me, though, (laughs) like sports is the only dramatic form that's left to us, right? Because opera, theater, film, TV, all of these stories are all predetermined. Even if we don't know what the outcome is going to be, we know that there is going to be some sort of a decision. We know there's going to be an outcome that has been written. It just hasn't been revealed to us. Sports is the only place left in our society where we truly don't know what's going to happen. And that is why it is so compelling. The question I ask myself is, how as a director can I try and capture that sense of suspense and lead my audience on a journey? Go to Marceline concerts. I guess yeah. I didn't know it was that easy. <laughs> yeah. That's Go to good. Vegas, see what she's doing, and try to imitate it and put just, it in the opera. I, I also, I just question the choice of Isaac Mizrahi as the chairman this year. I really do. The guy has directed, this is according to Opera Base, who does our stats. He's done two, he's designed two shows in the last two years. He did a little night music, Sondheim, at Houston Grand Opera, and then he did a production of um, Magic Flute, which he also directed uh, at Opera Theater of St. Louis. Surely, if what the... Uh, host the spokesman of national opera week is supposed to do to encourage his audience is you want someone who's not connected with the opera business right what if you had a sports legend who was like i'm so and so and yes i think you should go to opera surely that would widen the fan base like if it was bill murray or something like that like i I was i was thinking more like uh lebron james Okay. Well, I don't think LeBron James likes opera, but that guy Powell. Powell Gasol. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He, he's not that well known though outside. Well, of he doesn't Chicago, play for the Bulls he? anymore. Oh, he doesn't. Either, and I got traded. Oh. Uh, I just. He's really yeah, tall. I just feel like you want to get someone who's outside the business if you're trying to widen the scope of what like the, the business could be. New York Philharmonic has like Alec Baldwin, who's like their spokesperson. Who P.S. has like I'm a huge fan. He has this show called Here's the Thing, uh-huh. which is on WNYC. First of all, that guy's got an incredible voice for radio. Hmm. He's extremely charismatic. Does he? He does. I could <laughs> <laughs> Scott, well, who would be your your choice for a spokesperson? For opera, that's not in opera. Oh, I think it'd have to be somebody who's like a, like a <sighs> Tina Fey, you know, somebody who has just like broad appeal, who who's I'm been hoping... around a long time, who has like a way to connect with people. The way you know that that kind of humor that she's spinning here lately, like people really resonate with it, and I think that that would resonate more than a, a you know, a sports 
figure. So you know how Lady Gaga is like going towards like singing standard, you know, mm. repertoire. She's like, very mainstream now. Yeah, she is. But she's also like an actress. She's like doing like weird stuff on American Horror Story, whatever that show is it's called. So you know, good. I think that she it's she's not far away from doing opera from from because getting into because like everything she does is already so operatic. It'd be really cool to see her like take it on. You know, could she do like a Lulu or something like that? You think? No. I want to see her as Barbarina she and Richard Figaro. Okay, you're saying you're saying start small. I get it. Yeah, I get no, it. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're saying start small. Yeah. It's uh, Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. We're going to step away for one quick second. Stick around for the two-minute drill coming up next. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. You are Evanston, and this is the best of WNUR programming. Three tours driving Humvees in Afghanistan. Twelve years flying choppers. When my sister came back from her last tour in Afghanistan, she didn't want to talk about it, but she knew I was there to listen. Sometimes my husband still has difficult memories. They can be overwhelming. With the Veterans Crisis Line, I know where to turn when we need support. I made the call and got support for my sister. The Veterans Crisis Line is here for all veterans and their loved ones. Call 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. So, who's going to do what? Flashlights? Nowhere to be found. Emergency supply kits? Not packed. What about blankets? We have an old towel. Cell phones? May not work. Emergency water? Not a drop. Perfect. We all know where we're meeting if we're separated. The library. I'm Jones House. The bus stop. And I'll be waiting here wondering where you all are. Great. It sounds like we don't have a plan. Winging it is not an emergency plan. Make sure your kids know what to do during an emergency. Who to call, where to meet, what to pack. Visit ready.gov kids for tips and information. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute, because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know in two minutes or less. Roger Kaiser, the audience member who sprinkled his friend's ashes in the orchestra pit of the Metropolitan Opera during an intermission of Rossini's William Tell, which caused the performance to be canceled, has written a letter of apology addressed to, quote, Mr. Gelb and the entire Metropolitan Opera community. Kaiser writes that his actions were, quote, a sweet gesture to a dying friend that went completely and utterly wrong in ways that I could never have imagined. Tenor Lawrence Brownlee has kicked off his own opera news station at the recent Richard Tucker Awards. On Facebook, he posted, quote, I'm excited to announce the launch of my new TV news station, hashtag LBTV. Philip Glass has won the Chicago Tribune Literary Prize with his 2015 memoir, Words Without Music. 
Ticket holders to the L.A. Opera's opening night of Philip Glass's Akhenaten on Saturday were greeted by about 25 peaceful demonstrators who voiced their frustration over a white actor singing the title role of an Egyptian pharaoh. Anthony Ross Costanzo, who sings Akhenaten in this production and also sang it in a London run earlier this year, was one of only two performers whom L.A. Opera found to have the musical skill set and the physical requirements for the role, the company said. Two weeks before opening night, the Dutch director Jim Lucasen has resigned from the Frankfurt opera production of Tchaikovsky's Eugene Onegin, apparently on health grounds. The production will be carried forward by assistant director Dorothea Kirschbaum. And a local graffiti artist known as Retina has designed the new production of Verdi Zaida at San Francisco Opera. That's the two-minute drill. Back here on Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM, George Cedarquist hanging out with Oliver Camacho. Hello. And with Scott Brunchin. Hey. Thanks for sticking around, Scott. Appreciate sure. it. Um, okay, so Scott, this dude, Roger Kaiser, who sprinkled the ashes of his friend in the Metropolitan Opera House pit, should he be forgiven for this act or not? Yeah, I mean... What do you do at this point? It's kind of weird. And what exactly did he think was going to happen? But, you know, I feel like we should all just move on. That's And, and may, hopefully we don't need a disclaimer now, like, coffee is hot. Don't put ashes in a <laughs> orchestra pit. Oliver Camacho, you disagree with Scott, right? I've, I've, you know, I feel like we've played out this story. We talked about it last week. Uh, I feel terrible for this guy. I feel terrible that anybody dies. It's a shame when people die. Cremains are gross. I don't think you should bring them anywhere, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, especially not the Opera House. And I'm, I'm pissed off that people didn't get a chance to see uh, the rest of William Tell. That'd be so annoying. If you sat through that long, at, that long opera and then you didn't get to see the last act, like, and you were going to go back, you know? I mean, you did get the overture. Okay. Diggadum, diggadum, uh, yeah, 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 diggadum, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's the most important part. The but tenor um, didn't you know, get to sing his, his yeah, the, whole Shana. The Azil, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Um, no, but I mean, having to come back and like the, how much money did the Met lose like by having to refund people's tickets and then they had to cancel the night yeah. performance, like yeah. that's, that's pretty rough. They should well, sue him. I don't think you. I don't think you could sue a man who's grieving. I, I think that's beyond the pale. I, I was surprised Peter, Peter Gelb was so... Uh, Apologetic. I mean, he said forgiving. You mean forgiving? No. Forgiving. Yeah, exactly. I uh, that shows he's got kind of a big heart. I would have been livid. I mean, as Scott says, what can you do? Yeah. There's nothing you can do. Oh, In order to be forgiven, first you must forgive. Lawrence Brownlee has his own TV show. Have you guys looked the at gay, the gay, lesbian, thing? and bisexual and transgender? Well, it's, it's LBTV, <laughs> not LGBT uh, or BLT. Okay. Oh, I could kill a BLT right now. Yeah. Um, I I did. I watched the clip on his Facebook thing. It's not so funny. Oh, it's not? No, it's not really well oh, come done. On. Exactly. You want him on the show when he does Yardbird. Oh, it's not going to come it on It was now. amazing <laughs> what he had to say. And plus he's black. Now people think you're racist. No. Speaking no. of racism, uh, the L.A. story Go ahead. is ridiculous. There are only so many black countertenors, folks. And Anthony Roth Costanzo is amazing. And we want to hear this guy saying he did the same production in London. And it was a hit. And he, has to, he literally has to shave it his body of all its hair right. to do this thing. He's on stage. Well, he's probably waxed. He's on stage butt naked. Yeah, he is. Uh, he is waxed. And yeah. uh, God bless him for doing this show. It's a 
Philip Glass show. Not many people know it's it. Very difficult. And there are not that many black counterturners out there. I know I know all of them, I think. Yeah. <laughs> They're all my friends. And I'll ask one of them to learn it for the next production. But for now, be very we should be happy with Anthony Roth Costanzo. Yeah, it it does seem a little obsessive maybe or just not practical as you say there are very few people in this world who could sing that part i you know and like look we go to the theater to suspend our disbelief yeah uh, clearly la opera is not trying to make a racial statement here you know they want the best people in the part yeah they've got janiah bridges in it when they just did a whole black cast for dido like yeah. Last season, Oh, right? those where all the black countertenors went. Right. Yeah, they used them all up. <laughs> well, Daryl uh, Taylor, Taylor yeah. he's in, in our production of Fairy Queen, yeah. and he he was in that Dido, and he was like, I think he was interviewed by the LA Times. He was like, I don't know how people can say this is racist. Like, they clearly aren't. Yeah, people are too sensitive. I, I think so. And I mean, hey, look, you know, white guy here. And I'm sure the people that are protesting don't go to the opera. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> they, they may not understand the specifications yeah. of what it takes yeah. to do this. And they see a brother up there singing in a high voice like they're like, uh-uh, I don't want to see that, you know. Yeah. Philip Glass wins the Chicago that Tribune Literary Prize. <laughs> uh, I was surprised by that. Uh, I mean, yes, he wrote this book or it was co-written or ghost-written or something like that. But, I mean, he's foremost a composer, not a writer. Shouldn't surely the literary prize, like, go to a true writer? I wonder, I've never read it, but I wonder if it's like, I, 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 was, 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 born, 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 born. And then, you know, pages and pages of that. It sort of sounds like this. Uh, I, yeah, I, I disagree with that. You know who I'm thrilled for, though? The Cubs? It, uh, well, I'm thrilled for the Cubs. Mm. I'm really thrilled for uh, this assistant director at the Frankfurt Opera, Dor- oh, Dorothea. I said Dorothea earlier. Dorothea Kirschbaum. You want Trump to win, Kirsch- don't you? I, um, <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not taking that bait, Camacho. Uh, this is your dream. If you're an assistant director, this is your dream. That the that it's a new production at a big opera house. Frankfurt Opera is one of the most important opera houses in Germany today. And it's it's a tough show. Tchaikovsky's Eugene Onegin. And obviously, I'm sorry, this guy fell sick. That's what he says. Who knows really what, what the deal was. Poisoned. And, <laughs> yeah, poisoned by Dorothea Kirschbaum. And uh, so he goes down and this is your dream. That you get to step up and you get to save the day. A director saves the day? And the assistant director saves the the day. But isn't it already all mapped out? Like, didn't the director, like, come with, like, basically the blocking plan and, you know? But but if it's a new production, it's all in his head. Like, it hasn't been communicated. And furthermore, uh, someone's got to communicate it and someone's got to keep the energy in the room up. I mean, you have now lost the general. You have lost the leader of the pack. And that cast is panicking. And that administration is panicking that no one is there to save the day. And she gets to step well, up. Well, I guess if it's one of those reggae theater things and nobody knows what the concept is, yes, I could see the panic. But if it's like Lucia de Lamamore at a certain opera house in the Midwest yeah. where people are just like, here, go sing, sing this opera. Stand wherever you want. You know? That would be different. Yeah, that would yeah. be a lot less exciting. Definitely. Yeah. But um, I mean, for a new production at a big opera house like this. Wow. Very cool. You're like all 
you're excited about this. Like you're because you like, like I want to be her. You felt like it could have been you. If it you could were, have yeah. been me. Yeah. It could have been me. That's the truth. That's, been what, me. that's why you like this story a lot. Yeah. How, about, how about a boy can dream? It, mm. Well, it, it's true. It almost happened to me mm. in Darmstadt many, many years ago. <laughs> Take a drink, everybody. <laughs> uh, how about how about this dude? How about Retina, the local graffiti artist out in San Francisco? I don't know what that story is. Scott, you got something on that? <laughs> I got nothing. But good for San Francisco for you know getting something you should, new in there. You should look at the production photos of his designs for Verdi Zaida. They are absolutely. We're on the radio. This is an oral medium. I understand that. So go to the website operaboxscore.com. Check it out. Uh, by the way, this is Opera Box Score on eighty nine three WNUR FM. The designs are dreadful. They're just terrible. The graffiti opera. And I'm going to tell you why. It's because they are very, very two-dimensional. And they don't have any of that grit and any of that energy that we know graffiti and tagging has. When you see good graffiti, it feels like the hand behind it is still in that art. Or if you look at the works of Banksy, the British graffiti mm-hmm. artist, like you really feel like... I he was like, British. I thought he was like mysterious. He's he's British because all his work is in England. Okay, some of it's in New York, but most of it's in England. Okay. He's definitely British. Um, so, but you you lose that in does these he, does he in these. Graffiti out the word Q instead of line. How you know? I don't get it. Oh, oh yeah, I get it. No, um, but when you look at these the production models, the the screenshots or whatever the production shots from the from the Ada, it's just it's so boring. It's like a template. I just don't get it. I'm not quite sure why why they decided to um, why they decided to do this. So I'm trying to think of who I would rather see design this. Well, of course, David Hockney. He's a visual artist who designed. Yeah. Uh, he did a fair, famous. Um, I have a confession. I used to always on. get confused between David Hockney and David Gockley. And when I found out that David Gockley was the general director of. Was it San Francisco? Or San Francisco like yeah, opera like, until recently. Really, yeah. that painter guy? What the exactly. swimming pools and the gay guys? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be really confusing, actually. Yeah. yeah. I could, would you like? I'd like to see David Hockney run a opera company, and I'd like to see David Cockley. Co- <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see him do a painting of a nude man. That's right, folks. We're 15 years old here. <laughs> score. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, my goodness. Uh, hey, you boys want to wrap this show up? Please. Let's wrap this show up. All right. Hey, it's been a fantastic show. Scott Brenshin, thanks so much for hanging out with us. And thank you, Kimberly, if you're in your car listening to us right now. We really loved yeah, having exactly. you. Exactly. So. All right. Good call, bad call. Would you like to go first? I'll yeah, I'll do a little bit of both. So uh, bad call is that you'll notice if you're in the opera world that there's some stories circulating around about Lyric Opera Chicago's um, fiscal year 2016 and it's not great, and they still are going ahead with this ridiculous season they have planned. They have to. Uh, And the next show in that season is probably what's breaking the bank this year, which is The Trojans, which is a Mm -hmm. five-hour opera with uh, a huge huge cast. Yeah, And uh, they've got a star-studded cast with Christine Gerke and Susan Graham and a giant chorus, and it's like it's sucking all the blood out of this company. So let's that's my good call. Let's go. You, you might not like Berlioz. You might not make it to the five hours, but go. You'll, you'll probably see a discount for tickets somewhere on Facebook or something like that. Take advantage of it. Check it out. 
It's uh, an opera divided into two halves. The first half you can leave after the first half. No. Christine Kirk, you, I mean, if you. It's such good music afterwards. I'm sure it is. But if you can't stick for five hours, you forgot to pack a meal. You're like passing out at like 10 <laughs> o'clock. Um, yeah, Christine Gerke's in the first half. I'm going to stay for the whole thing. I'm yeah. actually very excited about it. I like Berlioz. But um, yeah, let's, let's, let's give one to Lyric Opera. Let's, let's help him out with that Couldn't one. Couldn't agree so. with you more. Scott Brunching. I don't. I don't. Pass. Pass. Pass on the good call, bad call? Yeah. Nothing to promote, huh? <laughs> I mean, come to my show, see me dance. Yeah. See, I, we have such a great cast. Um, and we didn't even a talk baller, about the band, baller, baller, you know? baller orchestra in the pit, yeah. led by a rock star, harpsichordist, conductor, Joy Vinacour. Um, Saturday and Sunday this weekend at Studebaker Theater, Fairy Queen, y'all. I have to say, The Canaries was one of the best movements in the whole show. And um, there is unfortunately some speaking over it, mm. but the Canaries in this case gets placed in the last act, or this I don't know how many, how many acts you guys have it in, but it's a duet between two recorders, and it's a beautiful, beautiful piece. That's when so, everybody's waking up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My good call. It's pretty obvious, right? Cubs? Exactly. That's it for tonight's show. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. For WNUR, our programming director is Nick Anderson, and the general manager is Brock Stussy. Our theme song, Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. But of course, we're on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Opera Box Score. Like our Facebook page, share and comment on our posts, and sure, troll us. I dare you. Use our hashtag... It's Opera Balls. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Hey, can you do me a favor, actually, and leave a review on iTunes? It'll take you like 30 seconds, but it's the cheapest and the fastest way to promote our show. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. Special thanks to our guests, Scott Brunchin and Kimberly Jones. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, even if you only do it once every 108 years. We're back next Monday night at 9 Central when Dinah Fisher officially joins the Opera Box Score team. Don't miss her first show as a co-host with us. Street Beat is up next with DJ Joe. You're listening to WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's Sound Experiment. (laughs) 